When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, December 5th. On today's show, we continue our off-season coverage of everything that happened in the tennis world in 2022. And because I get bored here in December, because there are so many different ideas floating around, you can take off-season coverage in so many different directions. What I have decided to do this week is introduce a theme to all of the podcasts you will hear on the Mini Break podcast this week. That theme is going to be peaks and valleys. That's what we're going to look at here. Who were the players who reached the top of the mountain, maybe had the best season of their career in 2022 when we look at those peaks? We'll also ask how replicable are those seasons from each of those players moving forward? Of course, on the other side of the equation, and typically we try to keep this podcast glass half full, but there were some glass half empty seasons certainly that are worth discussing in 2022. There were players who, no doubt about it, disappointed fans, probably disappointed themselves with their performances we saw on court. With all of that in mind, again, the theme of the Mini Break Podcast this this week, the peaks and valleys of the 2022 season. And on today's show, we're going to start off with the 2022 WTA disappointments. Now, throughout the course of the 2022 season, we talked about the parody we saw in the women's game. And the glass half full perspective on that parody, of course, is we saw so many different players throughout the course of the season capitalize on the opportunities that opened up for themselves, whether it be a seed getting knocked off early in an event, whether it be a young player taking another step forward in their careers. Of course, there were so many players who did reach peaks in 2022, but of course, part of the reason those opportunities existed is because some players certainly fell short of what they hoped to accomplish here in 2022. That's the discussion we want to have here on today's show. And if you're going to try and tackle a topic so monumental, you better have some help along the way. Thankfully, I do. Once again, as joining me on today's podcast is a man I am branding, co-host of our off-season coverage here on the Mini Break Podcast. Of course, you know him as a Tennis.com editorial producer and contributor extraordinaire. It is our dear friend, returning champion, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. Happy Monday to you. How are you doing today? I'm feeling disappointed. <laughs> I got a lot of thoughts. I got a lot of thoughts about how disappointed I am. In fact, the viewers can't see I'm wearing an an ode to the original WTA disappointment, which is Anna Kornikova circa 1999. But it's important to reference the fact that and clarify the fact that these disappointments are more often than not issued out of love than out of actual malice or contempt. So bear that in mind as we go down our lists. 
It's a very good preface. I was going to say the biggest disappointment is that all the listeners can't see how just spectacular. You said exquisite. I said exceptional. Both good words to describe how you're looking today. I will say, though, a little bit of a dagger. And I think we've discussed this before, but Anna Kornikova from my hometown. She grew up training at the club. I grew up training. Shout out Sports Club West Bloomfield. You had the Kornikova posters on the wall my entire life growing up at that club because obviously, you know, I was okay at tennis. I don't think I was on a Kornikova good. By the way, and maybe it's, I mean, it's not coincidental. He lived in Detroit. He would work out there. But next to the Kornikova poster was a Sergei Fedorov poster. Just always. You had those two next to each other, even when they weren't together, I suppose, moving forward. But yeah, feels like a little bit of a dagger, DK. Yeah, I seem to recall one of Kornikova's two ITF Pro Circuit titles coming in Midland, Michigan. Is that correct? Am I, uh, Midland am I... has a big 125K event every year. And so it, it checks out. Yeah. Good times. Good times. <laughs> we thought they'd never end. <laughs> yeah. Is it true? I mean, boy, talk about get uh, we're a little bit of a tangent here to start. But isn't it true that like the original Ask Jeeves or Google or whatever, Bing, whatever it is you were using back in the day. But I think Ask Jeeves was the OG for those that know. Couldn't it be you could type in when does Anna Kornikova turn 18 and it would give you like a countdown clock of like days, hours, minutes, seconds, months, etc. Wasn't that a thing? I can't speak specifically to that particular widget, although that sounds accurate, but certainly Anna Kornikova broke the internet before there really even was an internet. So as we look looked ahead on to all the players that we're dealing with in the past, present, and future, there was there was none before there was Anna Kornikova in many respects when we when we think of the modern tennis brand. Is that a December podcast for us to tackle? Should we do the Anna well I'm trying to think. When was 20 years? 29? Uh when did she break the internet? I don't know. This is a little bit again, I was like three or four. I think 2001 was when she really like peaked in terms of internet, but she played her last matches in 2023 of March of 2023 in 2003, (laughs) making it 20 years in 2023. Um, Yeah. And uh, shout out to, I believe the YouTube channel is called uh, Just Tennis Channel has been uploading tons of Anna Kornikova highlights. I mean, I don't care if that game sets us back 20 years. I love that crazy tennis. It's just wacky, that forehand, the serve. Is it technically reliant? Probably not. Is it fun to watch? Absolutely. <laughs> Our coach used to tell stories of like athletically, the things she could do for drills on court to just part of her training regimen. And he would just be like, yeah, you try it. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Like, it's just not going to work. Like, that's stupid. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of stories. I'm putting it in my phone now. Then 2023, whatever that month, day is of the 20-year anniversary of that final match, that is when we're going to do a podcast on Kornikova and her impact on the sport in that moment because who doesn't like a good history lesson? But that maybe that's a next December podcast. Again, this December, we want to focus on the 2022 WTA season. And to your point, I appreciated the preface because before we get into any specific names, Let's talk big picture. How do you categorize a disappointment? I'll just start before I get into my categorizations. As you were thinking through names, what were the traits, the characteristics? I mean, obviously, poor results is one, but you mentioned it not coming from a place of malice. How do you define a disappointment for the sake of this exercise? I think initially, I mean, 
I think the fact that we're having this conversation in December is important because I think a lot of what constitutes a disappointment is relative to the expectations that we had of the player at the start of the season. You know, going into 2022, how did we think these players were going to perform? And if they underperformed, inherently they're a disappointment. I think you can also look at players who had some really great results earlier in the season, middle of the season, and we're not able to carry that through to the end. I think some recency bias precludes us from really categorizing the late surges as disappointments. I mean, as rough as Arena Sabalenka's 2022 was, the way that she finished the season makes it harder for me to categorize her as a total disappointment, although you could certainly think of some large swaths of the season she left on the table. The way that she ended it and is heading into 2023 makes my expectations real nice and high. So if she doesn't end 2023 the way that I'm expecting her to, then maybe she's still in the hunt for the 2023 disappointment of the year. But certainly, I think the players who did not perform relative to what we expected them to do, it's hard not to feel a little bit bummed out, especially given all of the opportunities that there seem to be available to the top 10, top five players. Yeah, no, you categorized it perfectly. And for the record, I read the honorable mention. I read the Sabalenka section. Don't worry. I feel your outrage, DK. And everyone should go to tennis.com to read it. It was you. She was robbed. Yeah, it was you, Joel, and Stephanie, right? Who I believe wrote, yeah, Yeah. who wrote uh, the case for the players who didn't make the top five players. And you can look for the top five arguments coming on tennis.com this week. But you're right. I think there are different categories of disappointment. Certainly, there were the players. I mean, we can just say the name now and we'll get into the, the mechanics of the disappointment. But like the reverse of the Sabalenka is the Garbine Muguruza, who wins the tour finals last year. You feel like there were moments, particularly before she was injured in 2021, those first three months of the season. I have argued this before. I'll argue it again. I think she was the best player in the world. I think she was better than Osaka. I think during that Middle East run, Muguruza was exceptional. Obviously, she had the match point on Osaka at the Australian Open in 2021. You just felt like, okay, that's the year she had. Healthy going into 2022. Maybe we see a career year from someone who, 26, 27 years old, is at that point of her career where she should be smack dab in the center of her prime. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, So that's a name we'll get into. You know, you have players who looked so good throughout 2021 as well. Conteve, Bedosas of the world, right? Where did they maybe hold steady? Maybe, but like certainly it felt like the opportunities were there for those sorts of players to have leaps that they didn't. There are young players who, whether it be injuries or just maybe it was their first full year on different surfaces at the tour level where it didn't just quite click the way you perhaps were expecting And then there's the final category, which I just want to get into because certainly we will mention these players who actually did build some serious momentum in 2022, whether it be, you know, a really big result at a really big event, whether it be a really good month-long stretch or six-week stretch on the calendar. It felt like maybe these players were having a moment And then for whatever reason, which we can get into here on today's show, those players weren't able to capitalize on that momentum. I think that's a, you know, that's a disappointment I value, DK, where big picture, someone may have had a solid season, but they had an opportunity to be great and they didn't capitalize on it. I think that those sorts of players had to be on my list. Look, let's not talk about Palabadosa like she's not here. I mean, like that's sort of like when I think of the most the player that I was most disappointed by in 2022, it has to be Palabadosa. And in especially in light of that description, someone who 
until the very last week of the season, had an outside shot of making the WTA finals, despite not compiling a year that many would look at as being a banner season. She started the year so well, carrying that momentum from Indian Wells into winning Sydney, makes the fourth round of the Australian Open, you know, gets to number two in the world, which it's hard to believe a couple of, a couple of months ago that she was the top number two player on the WTA rankings, makes semifinals in Stuttgart, is looking to really run the table in on clay, and it doesn't happen. You know, has a light, you know, resurgence at Wimbledon. It's a good win over Kvitova, but really just not never able to bring that final um, match home that she really needed to to really create the momentum that she needed. And that's really the, the big bummer because she's someone who has that all around game, seemed really unbeatable by the time she won Indian Wells last fall. So I had big expectations for her, particularly at the Grand Slams. All right. Well, then with that in mind, let's just get into Paula Bedosa first because she is on your list. And for what it's worth, I asked David to come up with five names for today's exercise. He then comes on the Zoom link and we're chatting beforehand. I go, look, I have 14 names just in case you didn't bring your five names. And so we're not going to deep dive on everything. got no faith in me, viewers. Yeah. <laughs> No, you know what it is? It's that I sh- – yeah, oh, my God. All right, whatever. I'll it's just, just that this year was very disappointing. Let's no, be honest. Like, was it was a say- great year, but it was a very it was a year full of disappointments. No, I was going to say it's that I spoiled you because I gave you an outline with Gil, and I just don't want to disappoint you anymore now because I'm like I came prepared to one show, so now he knows what I'm capable of, so I don't want to come ill-prepared for a second show. But you say Bedosa is your biggest disappointment. I mean – I disagree. I think I think Muguruza has to be one. I'll make the case for after. And you sort of made the synopsis of your case for Paula Bedosa. But I guess when you look at the Paula Bedosa season overall, I like. I guess when I look at it, you know, obviously she reached that career high of number two back in April when she had the Indian Wells run to rest on and all the Wimbledon points from the year prior and, you know, the Roland Garros points, etc., you know, you look for Paula Bedosa here overall on the season. Again, does finish the year number 13, 32 and 22 overall. You know, in terms of total quarterfinals and where those total uh, quarterfinals came, she had seven, which is not a horrible number. And I mean, Indian Wells, Miami, couple of quarterfinals for her there. Made it in San Jose, San Diego to end the season. Now, you're right. There wasn't a definitive signature run, right? And after she won the title in Sydney to start the season, you thought to yourself, maybe there will be. But I guess why she can't be my biggest disappointment is that A, there were a bunch of injuries that nagged her at different points of the season. Certainly, it felt like she was in that Krachikova camp where they both looked really good in the first few months, right? And that they were capitalizing on 2021. Then injuries slowed them down. And then, you know, obviously Krachikova was able to find her form by the end of the season, I guess, in a way. But Dosa never was. But still, you look at that overall number. Seven quarterfinals, 32-22. and 22. She ended the year top 15. I agree. Like, I agree it was a disappointment, but not to the level of Muguruza. I mean, I got to be honest, Muguruza was not on my list because, frankly, I didn't even think of Muguruza. I understand that there was a lot of hype coming from some of us on the Zoom call about Carmina Muguruza <laughs> in light of her run at the WTA Finals in Guadalajara. But as much as Muguruza owned those first three months of 2021, she's really not been a factor for me since then. And in many ways, that week in Guadalajara felt like an aberration. You know, she got on a bit of a roll, got 
to play some really exhausted players in Bedosa and Contavite a couple of times in a row to win that title in Guadalajara. And sure enough, it's completely floundered to the point where what is Muguruza's ranking right now? Like, it just feels like I haven't really thought, I thought about her once this year. And that was when she played Petra Kvitova at the US Open, played a phenomenal match, but Petra outgutted her. You know, like that was really, that could have been a sliding doors moment perhaps for Muguruza. Certainly hoping it was going to be one for Kvitova that ended up sort of being sort of for nothing for both of them, but it was really a great match. And if you can watch the highlights of it, I highly recommend that you do. But yeah, Muguruza was almost too disappointing to be a disappointment, if that makes sense. Like there was yeah. just no potential for her to break out of that rut at any point this season. So it was hard to really consider her. For For Bedosa, the big disappointment for me comes from just scheduling and career management. And, and in fairness to her, this is her second really full season on the WTA tour. She was coming off a lot of momentum, a lot of expectations, expectations with which she has been open about struggling with over the past several years with mental health, with anxiety, with depression. And as she explained it to me going into the French, she really made a push to be number two in the world, which didn't make sense at the time because her immediate rival for world number two was Barbora Krechkova, who was not playing. And so she didn't. She There's a case to be made that she could have tripped and fallen up to number two without having to play Indian Wells and Miami and Charleston and Stuttgart all in a row to the point where by the time she gets to Miami, she's gassed and she's outplayed by Simona Halep, loses in Rome to Kasakina and really never gets that momentum back and still making some questionable scheduling decisions. She's playing the World Tennis League, I believe, uh, during the offseason. She's already committed to playing Charleston next spring, which surprising. I would hope she would not play both Charleston and Stuttgart in light of how things turned out for her last spring. But because you can't look at her from a technical perspective, you can't look at her really from a coaching perspective, didn't really make any major shifts in her team, seems very happy off the court, making friends, you know, really a budding friendship with Arena Sapolenka is in a good place romantically, it would seem with her boyfriend Juan Betancourt. I mean, this is just a head scratcher because there's really nothing about her game from a technical perspective where you think, oh, this is this was on shaky ground. She was probably the most well-rounded player, had wins over top players, and just didn't happen. And so for me, that was far more disappointing than Muguruza just continuing to sort of underachieve in many respects in her career. Yeah, I would say you summed it up perfectly. And my only final thoughts would be, you look at the first half of the season, we'll do a quick game of good win, bad loss. You know, as rank of first match of the season doesn't even count. But then round of 16 loss to, uh, in Australia to Madison Keys. Like, Keys was the best player in the world in Australia, or second best player yeah, in the Keys world. Keys outplayed her. It yeah. wasn't even close. Yeah. So I would say not a bad loss. Three sets Dubai, Rusa, fine. Not great. But then Doha, Coco Golf, round of 16, I'd say whatever. Sakari, semifinals, three sets Indian Wells. Again, I would say not a bad loss. Pagula, quarterfinals Miami, she has to retire. Not a bad loss. Three sets, Charleston, Benchich. I didn't think that was a bad loss. Did you? She served for that one. Yeah, exactly. She served for that one. She probably should have won it. It's a bad loss in the sense that she let it go. And it was, but it was still fairly close in the third, just a wacky one. It was one of those, if you win, you get to number two. And so I think that was probably what was playing on her mind at that point. But again, just that needless pressure for a ranking milestone that uh, does does anyone really care about world? I mean, like, you know, she'll always be a top two player now. She'll always have that career high ranking. But given the way that the environment was on the tour at the time, there was no real competition for her to get to number two. And so just a gross miscalculation, especially if she was starting to feel sort of run down physically. Yeah. And then look, I mean, Sabalanka and Stuttgart, not a bad loss. 
Halep Madrid, 3-1 is not great, but Simona Halep at times was the second best player in the world this year. Kasakina Rome. Kasakina did make the semifinals of the French Open, and then she retires at Roland Garros. So through the first half of the season, to your point, things looked really good. Now, there were a ton of matches under her belt, but she played really well through that first half. You're right. The disappointment was the second half. She lost nine of her last 12. That's a tough, tough place to end the season for Paula Bedosa. You know, the Putensiva loss a Martich loss, even maybe Harriet Dart at Billie Jean King Cup, although, man, Dart on the right day can look very, very good. Still, big picture, Bedosa, 36% break percentage. That's 0.5% better than the two-air average. She was top 25 break percentage. The big issue was the serve for her this season, and you know the hold percentage fell to 68.6%. That's below her career average. That's below the average of a top 50 player, which is 70.2%. That said, again, she had a really good first half of the season. That's why she's a lesser scale disappointment to me. Now, you're right. Like, you categorized it perfectly. The scale of disappointment is you had an opportunity to not only be the number two player in the world, but to sort of establish yourself as one of the clear-cut, you know, top 10 players in the world with all of the openings that there are. And she wasn't able to do that. You know, you look at a record against top 20 opponents, actually four and six for the years, not horrible. Um, but, and that's why, again, it's a lesser scale disappointment to me. I'm curious because I have these two players connected in my disappointment rankings. I guess I ranked disappointments, DK. That's what I do here in the month of December. I think Annette Conteve and Paula Bedosa are, are – it's the same season to me. When I look at Annette Conteve, who finishes the year at number 17, you look for Conteve overall. She actually had the better record superficially, 29-16. and 16. You look for her. I mentioned the seven quarterfinals for Bedosa, seven quarterfinals for Conteve. She actually made four finals, did win that title early in the season in St. Petersburg. But again, whether it be due to injury, whether it be due to a really tough streak of play on the clay courts, which was related to an injury she suffered, it just felt like the opening was there for Annette Conteve as well. And neither, you know, Maria Sakari would have been right next to these two players had she not ended the year as well as she did in Guadalajara and made that run to the semifinals. But the those were three players, Bedosa, Conteve, Sakari. The three biggest winners of 2021, arguably. And maybe you throw Jabur in there as well. And, like, Jabur had a great season. Sakari holds on at the end. Bedosa and Conteve were the two disappointments. I mean, Sakari is an interesting one because she's another player where I feel like my expectations for her were not that high to begin with. So the fact that she was underperforming for a lot of 2022 was kind of felt in line. Like, is she a number – she a top three player, realistically, in, in almost any other era? So super nice to talk to one of the best athletes on tour, technically, tactically, mentally limited. And yet when she came to Fort Worth, she really did put down some phenomenal matches and really made me perhaps look at her in another way. Whereas Muguruza, it's a little different because she was, you already know what her ceiling is. Whereas Sakari, we're still not entirely clear, although pessimistically, it's certainly lower, I would imagine, than a Muguruza. And it's a similar situation for Contavite, where I think I had a lot more expectations of Bedosa than I did of Contavite coming into the season. If I had expectations of Contavite, they were surely dashed by how she performed against Clara Towson at the Australian Open. And to be fair, Towson, very talented, was in good form at that tournament. But that was really the big question mark for Contavite coming into the 2022 season. Could she perform as well as she performs at smaller tournaments at Grand Slams? 
it didn't happen. And in sort of a cynical way, the fact that she was injured, ill for a lot of the year kind of allows her to get a bit of a pass because you'll look at her year and say, well, she was sick. Uh, well, she had the long COVID. She was injured and she was never really informed. But when she was healthy on her best, one of her best surfaces, she doesn't perform the way she needs to against, you know, a young, talented player, but a player that a Danielle Collins was able to beat in the next round and route to the final. That's sort of the difference for me between a Collins and a Kansavite, although there, I think there's an argument to be made that, that, that Collins was also in a way, a bit disappointing given how well she started the season. But back to Contavite, just, you know, she did, she in many ways held par, you know, winning a tournament like St. Petersburg, that seems to be on brand for her at this point, winning an indoor tournaments, you know, playing playing clutch tennis at a lower level, but again, not performing well at the majors. Disappointing because I did think that she, if she ever had it in her, it was going to be at the start of the year. And so we're definitely going to have to wait and see now that she's ostensibly healthy, has a steady coaching situation around her, fit, She's kind of got one more shot, in my opinion, to kind of like turn around the narrative on her career. We have a group chat I've referred to often, myself, you, Ben Rothenberg, called I Was Right, You Were Wrong. And the crux of that title is about Annette Contavite, who I want to be right about and say you guys were wrong about. Because Annette Contavite has been someone who has been on the precipice of being in that inner circle of contenders. And certainly when you rip off the run she did to end last season, whatever it was, like 24 and 2 or whatever, crazy run she went on to end last year, all the titles, all the wins. It felt like I was on the precipice of being right and you were wrong. And even there were times this year, to, especially to start this season, when she wins St. Petersburg, wins over Benchich, Ostapenko, Sakri, and Teichman in that run. That's a really impressive run for Kontavite. She then goes to Doha, makes the final, wins over Ostapenko again. Jabur, Mertens before a loss to Iga, but let's keep in mind everyone loses to Iga. Even to end the year, whether it be in Tallinn or in Hamburg, where I thought she looked pretty good on her way to the final before Bernarda Pera gave her the business, there were moments when Kontavite looked extraordinary again. But to your point, she regressed back to the 2020-2019 form, where in the biggest events, the biggest matches, the biggest moments where if you want to be in her circle, you just got to come through more frequently— she wasn't able to do that this year, and you mentioned it at the slams. Now, Tossin looked like a future best player in the world in that Australia match. Let's be abundantly clear. Like, let's you you have to remember the match. Clara Tossin was exceptional, but you're right. Big picture, that's a bad loss for Contavite. Roland Garros, a six and five loss to Isla Tamjanovic. Again, in a bubble. Maybe not a bad loss, but in the recurring theme for Annette Conteve, that's a tough one. Wimbledon, second round, Niemeyer. Niemeyer played great. That's a match you would expect Contevite to get through. And then the one you didn't even mention, and I understand she wasn't just playing a player. She was playing arguably, I don't know, 62.5 million fans. But the three-set loss to Serena was kind of inexcusable at the U.S. Open as well. It's just like Serena was not playing that well. And it felt like after that second set, Conteve sort of was like, nah, all right, like, stop it. Like, let's just play tennis because I am the better tennis player. But then, and no, this is not meant to be disrespectful to Conteve, but I think objectively the scene, the moment became too much for her. And so why it's a disappointment to your point is that Annette Conteve has reached that stage where the only question left is, can you get the big ones? Can you make a big slam run? Can you make a big 1,000-level event run? 
And this was the year where the window was really open for her to answer that question, yes. Similarly as it was to Bedosa. And that's why I have them on that same tier is I don't think either one of them answered it, yes. Is that fair why I think the disappointments are similar scale? Yeah, I would say they both had a similar question mark over whether they can go deep at a slam. I think for Bedosa, there was maybe... It was a slightly smaller question mark, maybe because I just felt more confident in her ability to do it. Um, and to be clear, with regards to the WhatsApp chat, I would love to be wrong about an account divide. I enjoy that yeah. very, very – it's very silly tennis, no, and I appreciate it. You're the swing it. voter. Let's be clear. Not to give away who's – I don't want to say anti-contivite, but maybe doesn't believe in her upside – I'll, I, you know, I'll, who, I who is anti-net? Yeah, is the third <laughs> member of that group. I think I'm in the pro camp. You are the swing voter here. I would love to be wrong. Like I yeah. think that that game is very fun to watch. And when she was playing as well as she did, yes, even making the finals in Doha. And I think there was obviously that weekend was quite a politically charged one. That was, I believe, the weekend that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. I think that was something that was really weighing on Kontavite's mind. And then obviously what happens then with injuries and illness and everything. So, I mean... She certainly had everything thrown at her and someone who was not, you know, already known to be sort of a steady competitor and someone with who's a mental steel trap on the tennis court. So she certainly had every possible disadvantage thrown at her, not, you know, completely including getting having to play Serena on Arthur Ashe Stadium. But I mean, you know, Ila Tomjanovic got the job done and Contify didn't. And so that's kind of like a rough one, especially when like you just had the shot and you just had Serena on the ropes and then someone who has not had the same um, attention put on her in terms of like being a big future potential Grand Slam champion, you know, has a much seemingly easier time of doing the thing that you probably should have been able to figure out in three sets at at least. But um, yeah, I think, you know, narratively speaking, Contavite is stuck. Bedosa is in some ways stuck and it's up to them over the next couple of months to kind of get themselves unstuck and prove that they belong and that they are going to be able to compete in this pool of players, which has not necessarily gotten bigger in the time that they have regressed. So in many ways, they can just kind of go back to business as usual. If they start winning again, it'll sort of be like last year or this past year never happened. Yeah, I I think that's very well said. And I do think for Bedosa and Conteve, why, again, they're not my biggest disappointments is it's like, look, big picture, they didn't have bad seasons. It was a holding pattern season. They were okay. They weren't bad. They were fine. They had the opportunity to be great, and they didn't capitalize on it, and everyone strives for that opportunity. And that's why it is inherently disappointing. That said, DK, with all due respect, you're just wrong about Garbine Muguruza. And the equivalent I would have for this (laughs) is another instance where I was with people when they were wrong. And this was in college. And I don't remember. It was like, I think it was either early summer. It was just like there wasn't much to do that night. And so some people we were with wanted to go see the new Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was like the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was like, guys, we are over the age of 20 now like really you want to go see pirates of the caribbean 5 and like my roommate michael and i were vehemently against it ultimately we were outvoted so we're like fine we'll go with you like whatever it's one night and it was just the worst movie like maybe i've ever seen there was a moment in the movie i like there was like this jewel board it was just horrible at one point michael like made this groaning noise like oh my god this is awful and everyone started laughing in the theater because it was acknowledgement that this is terrible um and that's garbine muguruza this season where it was just like especially by the end of the year you're like do i even want to tune into this because 
I know how bad it's it, it has gotten this year, to your point. And you look for Garbine Muguruza overall in the year, David, 12-17. and 17. I mean, she lost seven first-round matches. She made three total quarterfinals, you know, two of them after winning just one match at the event. Like, how many times did Garbine Muguruza win multiple matches at an event this year? Twice. She won it twice at the U.S. Open and in Doha. How many times did Garbine Muguruza win three matches at an event this year? Zero times. Absolutely zero times. Not once did she win three matches in a row. And this is a player who, again, not only is a former world number one, not only is a former Grand Slam champion, but a player who went 42-17 and 17 last year, David, who won the tour finals in Guadalajara to end the season. A player who, again, I swear to you, if she does win that match point against Naomi Osaka in Australia, she's winning that Australian Open. In my opinion, she was the best player in the world. And let's not forget start of 2020, she was a finalist in Australia. Played, you know, a really good match to beat Simona Halep in that semifinals, although Halep did not play her best match there. But we, not to relitigate that, the point is Muguruza was 23-7 and in 2020, 42-17 in 2021 and had legit feather in the cap runs during that season. And then she goes 12 and 17 this year and ends the season ranked number 56. Garbine Muguruza, who turned 29 in October. Again, not that the prime, you know, again, every statistic obviously fell off a cliff for her this year. So we don't even have to get into those numbers superficially, but like, you know, matches lost to Hreet Minin and Andrea Petkovic and Angelina Kalanina, like Alize Cornet in Australia. These are just not losses. There are other losses that actually weren't that bad, but just like it was a bad year. Like this is the biggest disappointment as you go from tour finals champion, maybe playing the best tennis of your career in 2021 to what is the worst season even going back to 2012 for Garbine Muguruza on the WTA tour. First of all, keep Alize Cornet's name out your mouth because that was a phenomenal week from Alize Cornet. She beats Muguruza, beat Halle, finally made a Grand Slam quarter. But at the, leave time, alone. at the time, no, you're right. You're I mean, right. look, I mean, I you. this is again another I was right, you were wrong or whatever because you were coming out of that week feeling very high on Muguruza's chances and you were willing to connect how she ended the year to how she started the season in a way that sort of obfuscates the sort of cavernous middle of the season, the the valley that was from February to October or even early November, you know, and this is someone who we've been talking about now for almost a decade, if not longer, who has not really proven capable of keeping the good vibes going for very long. And it's only getting more disappointing in the sense that it feels like everything is sort of together for her to finally do it. She's got the coach that everyone always thought if she was only spent more time with Conchita Martinez, she would be able to, you know, do wondrous things that the the coaching situation was holding her back. And I think ultimately for Garbinier, there is some kind of mental, technical, lack of synergy where she'll just go out on court and not be able to get a ball into the court. And it just, it's, it's brutal because there's nothing really technically wrong with her game in the sense that, wow, that backhand is ugly or wow, that forehand, I don't know how she gets it over the net. It's just like seemingly an inability to determine when to terminate points 
at the right time. She just goes for the wrong shots and it they fly out, they fly in the net, you know, the serve sometimes lets her down and it just feels like we're poking holes in the dam to try to get everything to fall into place. And so well, just to relative just to, to add to that, you're you're a thousand percent correct. You're just like nothing worked for Garby. There was no synapse, no connection, whatever, between this is shot A in the rally, and I'm doing shot A to set up shot B. Or I'm doing this thing first to then try and open this opportunity. Mm-hmm. That just wasn't there for Muguruza. This like it was literally. There were points where I'm just like, "Are you just swinging to swing? Like, there's just no plan right now for Muguruza on court." And this is a player who, you know, there are times when I see her and I think, and I know I, you, I another name you're gonna say, "Get out of your mouth." He who must not shall be. Uh, he who shall not be named. Where there's Virev to parts of Muguruza's game, where you're just like athletically, technically superficially, I love everything you can do on the court. And when it's all working, there are times when you're like, oh, Garbine Muguruza, like you are just, this is the answer to how do you disrupt everything. Like You saw that for maybe three minutes of her time on court this season total. Like that's, that's it. It just, there was no connection between anything she was doing. So I'm very disappointed because I thought you were saying Shade and not shot A. And I was thinking, yeah. what is this technique on court? The shot yeah, A. I must, I must find out about this. But again, I think with Muguruza, yes, she was disappointing this season, but this is not her first season of being this disappointing. So I think maybe this is okay, the most cataclysmic. This, this scale- was perhaps her most cataclysmic season, but for her, the bar for someone who's been number one and won Grand Slams is unfortunately very high. And if you go through a year that is mediocre. For, or even solid for the average player, but then does not, you know, qual- that does not yield, you know, a top two ranking, a Grand Slam title. It's a disappointment. I think that um, in general, Muguruza has been that sort of all or nothing player. She only has, I think, a handful of titles and like a third of them are slams because she just doesn't typically bring the ball home at the end of the, and at the end of the week. And to your point in 2021, it felt like she'd finally found that balance, but she was performing well in slams, performing well at, at other tournaments, winning titles, but for some reason, she wasn't able to maintain that bubble. And, you know, at this stage of the game, and again, this the same goes for, you know, Bedosa and Kansavite. The field has not gotten tougher. So she's got that to, you know, obviously, Sviantek notwithstanding. There's certainly a lot of room for a Garbina Muguruza. I mean, I think even, you know, given how the Fort Worth tournament shook out at the WTA finals, I could have seen perhaps Muguruza doing some damage had she been at her 2021 level. You know, there certainly was room for her in that top eight. So, and that, and that perhaps can create some strange motivation issues where like you, if you always know that the elite is just within your grasp, do you work as hard when maybe if you feel like it's a little bit farther away from you at this point, you have something more to prove Maybe you don't do that extra push on the practice score because you feel like, well, if I really wanted to be there, I could be there. But I don't, you know, I don't feel like it because it's whatever at this point. I mean, she's someone who's really in some ways overachieved because she's won the two slams. She's been number one, sort of despite of this uneven career, but has also given those results. We expect a lot from her in return. And and but for me personally, coming into 2022, I was certainly not expecting a banner year. Was I expecting a cataclysmic year? Probably not. I was maybe something a bit more top 20-ish, top 25, but certainly bad. But she just, unfortunately for me, was not on my radar at all by the end of the season. I frankly almost forgotten her. 
No, it's fair. Since the start of 2014, Garbine Muguruza has won more than 60% of her matches in all but two seasons. This year, obviously, where she won 41.4%. That's not good. Lowest of her career. Even lower than 2012 when she went 6-8. And, and 2019, where she went 22-17. and 17. But in 2019, she played seven total matches after the French Open. And injuries played a much bigger role in that number looking like it does. This was, again, a massive disappointment to uh, your point in a year where this was the opening. Barty retires after Australia. Iga is not Iga yet. And with all due respect to all the young talent, because we talk about it all the time here at Crack Rackets, from the Goffs to the Chin Wens, Igas of the world, etc. They're all coming. But this was the year, 28 years old, have yourself a prime season. Like, the opportunity was just wide open for Garbin Muguruza. And that's why I think it's the biggest disappointment. Because on the age curve, this was the year where you just say, okay, you could be the number one. Like, that's how things are breaking open for you. And she didn't capitalize on it. And so that's, to me, why she has to be the biggest disappointment. Versus a Bedosa and a Conteve, where you feel like, okay, at least the window's still open for both of those players. Like, they're, you know, they're a little bit younger. They didn't drop out of the freaking top 50, you know, let alone the top 20. Um, I just, that's why Muguruza is number one on my list. That's why I think she has to be discussed. But again, I still have 11 players on my list. And the rest of this way, we can go a little quicker now through them. We the night is young. Into, yeah, the depths <laughs> of the disappointment, I suppose. But DK, so uh, Muguruza was not on your list. Was Conteve on your list? She was. Okay. Conteve, so we- Bedosa. So, um, no, no, don't list. get to all of them yet. No. So that's what I was going to say. So we have two of your five. Get, yeah. get, give me number three. Who you got? I have somebody else. You just brought her up. Is it a disappointment if you win a slam and then retire shortly thereafter and then sort of deprive us of the oh, rest of the year? Oh, I mean, hey, there's something to be said. I don't know if I I mean, it was just such a whirlwind moment for Barty. Sure. I mean, her whole career arc is bizarre. I mean, we've talked about it when she retired. She's racked up these, you know, Hall of Fame numbers. She put, started to really put herself in contention for the sort of Hingis burgeoning on perhaps Celis numbers, players, you know, who, you know, this sort of greatest of all time conversation, obviously not, not like that, but like in that sort of, in the, in the large conference room that is sort of, you know, sort of the greatest women to ever play the game, like Barty had kind of gotten herself somewhat into that, you know, opening vestibule. And you felt like, where is she going to go from here? And where she goes is immediately off the tour. <laughs> and it's sort of this, a strange career to analyze because it's in many ways preserved in Amber, you know, she goes out on top and, you know, maybe she feels like she, you know, she spent last year sort of proving herself as the best player on tour. And then once she proved all she could prove, she felt like she no longer needed to prove it and, and exited stage left. But it would have been interesting for me to see how she proceeded through the season, how she performed, you know, in Paris, how she defended her Wimbledon title. I think that was sort of a missing wrinkle on the tour. I would have wanted to see more matches between Barty and Sviantec, how those two uh, matched up, how a peak Sviantec matches up to, you know, a Barty trying to, you know, defend her position at the top of the game. It feels like for me, in many respects, she never really had serious challenge to her ranking, not least of all because she, you know, missed almost all of 2020. <laughs> she didn't have to, you know, defend the number one ranking then and then does it in 2021 in sort of an uneven year against, you know, uneven competition to say the least. And then obviously, you know, took spots uh, on the calendar to take off. So um, yeah, just a strange one for me, a disappointment for the tour who was looking for that cadre of elite level talent. And then as we talk about players 
who are failing to reach that, who are st- still playing, the fact that we kind of had one in Barty and no longer have her is, is, is in its own way a disappointment. I could not agree with you more, David Kane, and I am so glad this is why I talked to you. Her list because she was not on my list, and that's such a great case to make. Out of fourteen, thing that has yeah, exactly. I can't believe I missed it. Um, the thing that has made me brought me more that yeah, just it it doesn't upset me. That's the wrong word to use here, but I just think it grinds my gears a little bit when people say there are no good rivalries on the WTA tour and that like there's this dearth of top end talent right now in the women's game. And I just want to say to them, you guys realize the world number one retired in February. Like you have to put the biggest asterisk right now on that conversation because we had two tier one talents. It's like Barty was undefeated in the first month of the season. Like, can we remember that, please? Can we have a little bit of long-term memory to say we had this unequivocal, dominant world number one? Not unequivocal, maybe in dominant, but a clear-cut, well-deserving world number one in Ashley Barty. Who, let's be clear, where did Ashley Barty win her first slam title? Wasn't on a hard court. Wasn't at Wimbledon. It was at the French Open, and we never got to see full-power Barty versus full-power Sviantec in a clay court match the way we wanted to. That is devastating as a tennis fan and goes very quickly ascending up the what-ifs list in tennis history because that matchup would have been exceptional. Obviously, Barty winning Wimbledon last year, it felt like, okay, she might never lose this event again through her prime of her career. She might go on a five-Wimbledon run with her aggression, the slice backhand, her serve, willingness to move forward. Obviously, she wins in Australia to start this year undefeated, I'll say it again, in the first month of the year. And then she retires. And it's just like if we could have had Prime Barty with an ascending Iga and then you supplement it all with the Jabers and the 40 top 20 players we have right now in the women's game, now you're freaking talking. And like you're right. You have to mention her. Like we were robbed of what would have been maybe the best rivalry in the past 10 years, DK? Certainly when – I think when you're thinking of the sort of uh, classical tennis fans, the tennis purists, I think they wanted to see, you know, a Wimbledon final between Iga Svantec and Ash Barty. I mean, the Barty case is, again, very strange because even when she won Wimbledon in many of her matches, it sort of felt like she was white knuckling it and felt like she was white knuckling this career and just sort of, you know, just doing enough and having that momentum and that extra oomph and that sort of, uh, you know, unorthodox or non-traditional game or I guess back all the way like 70s, 80s traditional versus modern traditional game that was able to get her through these matches and win her these, you know, extra two extra grand slams after the pandemic. And the fact that she left the tour sort of contributes to the climate in the women's game. I mean, you see what happens after she leaves. Indian Wells and Miami are, in my opinion, two very well-contested tournaments. You had semifinals between Sakari and Bedosa. You had Sviantec, you had Naomi Osaka. You felt like everyone within the top 10 were sort of rising to the occasion. And then what ends up happening is that Iga takes over. And then we sort of end up with the same situation that we were in pre-Barty retirement, where it was just Barty and everybody else. And now it's Iga and everybody else. And I think maybe that's sort of the amplification of the Muguruza problem, where when you have only one number one, 
it's harder to be motivated because you feel like, well, you know, every, everyone's just going to lose to Ega. Everyone's just going to lose to Ash. Why do I bother? You know, when I get up against them, you know, I think Sabalenka had that sort of breakthrough towards the end of the year where she finally realized, listen, I can compete with, she knew that she could compete with Ega, but she knew that she finally figured out what she had to do to beat Ega at a big tournament when it mattered. And she got it done. And that's something that, again, makes me really, would make me very hesitant to, uh, make her a disappointment for 2022 because how do you beat the world number one the way that she did it at the last week of the season and then be, uh, but your season. Uh, I mean, like that's very few people were able to do that against Ego when it mattered. So kudos to her for that. But I think it would have been a very different situation if you had a rising Ega, a defend a defensive Ash Barty, and then everybody else sort of trying to have that moment. Because then if Ega usurps Ash, then Ash becomes a target. And then everybody else in the top 10 are thinking, oh, this is my moment to beat Ash Barty. Or this is my moment to beat Ega when if, if or, or vice versa. If if Ash was able to hold off Ega, then this is the opportunity for the rest of the field to come for Ega. You, it's a more complex dynamic. And right now, and for the past couple of years, the WTA dynamic has been almost too simple where there has been parity, but to such an extreme level that it's hard for everyone to kind of know where they stand at any given week. So that's been, yeah, it's it, it changed the complexion of the tour for the worst in the long term. Yeah, very, very well put. And I would love if Ashley Barty announced, you know what, I'm going to come back and play Australia. Just so you guys I mean, look, let's not get crazy. No, but I'm just saying if she did that, like, is she the second favorite right away? Like, do you, it goes ego one, her two, right? Um, it's hard because again, as we've said for everybody else, there's room, (laughs) there's room at the top of the game. But at the same time, Ashley would be coming into presumably her first slam, you know, under a lot of pressure, having not played, you know, yeah. and being in sort of a weird headspace. That could be an odd one for her. I think it would make her maybe. Yeah, but if really anyone can running. do it, if anyone can do it, it's Ash freaking Barty, who you just feel like sometimes just tunnel visions through. She's um, a strange one because she yeah. felt like she wasn't going to travel anymore. And then she has done some traveling, some international travel. I thought she would never leave Australia again, the way that she talked about wanting to be at home and wanting to spend time with her family. So the the rigors of a tour are not totally um, anathema to the life that she's living right now. So mm. perhaps maybe we'll see her in the next couple of years. She's still very young. So I think, you know, we've certainly seen plenty of players, you know, leave in the mid, in their mid-20s, come back in their late 20s and have solid careers. Kim Kleisters, even Martina Hingis when she came back. So I think uh, the, the story might not be done on Barty as a tennis player, but certainly in the short term, she has left sort of a, a strange uh, gap in the, the WTA uh, portrait. All right, fair enough. Well, speaking of anathema, let's move on to our next category like that one. Um, all right, I have a couple of players grouped together here in categories that I want to run you through. And again, we don't have to do the full deep dive into the stats on all of these players, but I do think there's a scale of disappointment here, and I alluded to it in the intro. Players who built some momentum, had moments, dare I say, during the 2022 season, and we're unable to capitalize on them big picture. And there are three players I have on that list. Madison Keys, Yelena Ostapenko, and Jill Teichman. Those are the three players I categorize into this disappointment. And for that, it, it's let's start with Keys. She was the second best player in the world, maybe the third in Australia, right? Like, no doubt, Ash Barty, undefeated, insane. Madison Keys was also insane throughout the course of her run in Australia. And you look, you know, obviously for Madison Keys to start the year, just, you know, I, you take warm-up events with a grain of salt. I get it. But you look for her in her run in Adelaide, beat 
Samsonova, Svitolina, Martinsova, Goff, and Ali Risk on her way to that title. Uh, then in Australia, first round six and five over Kennan, different Kennan than we saw by the end of the year, but Bedosa, Krachikova on her way to that semifinal loss to Ash Barty. I mean, again, Madison Keys was as good as anyone, not named Ash Barty through the first month of the season. But, you know, you look, I suppose, from February 21st onwards. And for Madison Keys, she finishes the 2022 season 30-20 and 20 overall on the year. From February 21st onward uh, in the 2022 season, Keys goes 19-18 and 18 the rest of the way. So, again, she was 11-2 and two in January, 19-18 and 18 the rest of the way. Now, I know Madison Keys has very often been throughout the course of her career, catch fire in a bottle, ride that fire out. She's also been oftentimes a big event performer as opposed to the week-in, week-out grind. That said, again, after the first month of the season, Madison Keys healthy, turning 27 years old in February, you just felt like, okay, you know what, maybe this is the prime version of Madison Keys. And then whether it be nagging injuries, first-round losses, just different things adding up, it was just the same season from Keys. And it's just like at 27 years old, is it time to just accept this is who Madison Keys is? I mean, if you're just coming around to accepting who Madison <laughs> Keys is today, December 5th, 2022, then well, no, January, like we, have, we have bigger problems. I mean, yeah, listen, January honestly. January reinvigorated me. In one respect, she did almost have me fooled, but she didn't actually have me fooled in Australia. She sort of had me fooled in Paris, where looking at the draw at the Roland Garros, I said, former semifinalist Madison Keys is about to make another Grand Slam semifinal and be, I think at that point, the only player to make back-to-back Grand Slam semifinals. And then she loses, I think, right away in the third round. Was it to, oh, I can't Kuder remember Matova. who. Matova. Yeah, that's that's bad. I'm sorry. Bad round loss. four for what um, it's worth. Round yeah. four. Yeah, but... um. You know, narratively speaking, Keys is sort of like a beta Muguruza in a way because makes that Australian Open semifinal. I had no faith she was going to beat Ash Barty. I mean, like, did you? I just and I knew what was going to happen. It was going to be a very perfunctory. Her only Grand Slam semifinal win has been over Coco Vandeweghe. I mean, like, that's no bueno. <laughs> just sort of like the 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 story of of Maddie Keys again. Really nice plays, you know, a very silly game that I I do enjoy watching when it's peaking. I mean, the way that she really just took the racket out of both Bedosa and Krejcikova's hands in many ways sort of like ended both Bedosa and Krejcikova's seasons before they began. I mean, those were the two players coming in with the most momentum and Keys, you know, really had her way with both of them, destroyed Krejcikova's necklace, allegedly, during that quarterfinal in Melbourne. And so for Keys, again, it's hard for me to feel disappointed because in many ways this has sort of been this is kind of a peak season for Madison Keys. You know, she made a Grand Slam semifinal. I mean, this has been her ceiling. And then not being able to perform at her best against, you know, a really informed player has been sort of her her bugbear and her cross to bear no, bearing, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, bearing down on her 2022. That's why the Cincinnati run was really impressive as well. And then, you know, looked like she was playing really well, headed into that golf match. And golf kind of gives her the business oh. in New no, York. I had, I had, so. No, I knew, I knew golf had that one. Yeah, so like, is, again, hmm. I would say – uh, fair enough, I get it. What about Ostapenko, who I think you could argue had one of her better seasons this year? And there, especially, you know, again, Ostapenko to start the year, semifinal St. Petersburg, three sets Krichikova, third round Australian Open, wins Dubai, semifinals of Doha, was the last player to beat Iga, obviously, for a little bit. 
Then back-to-back first-round losses. Indian Wells, Miami to Shelby Rogers loses four straight matches before the start of Roland Garros, where she loses second round there. But then the hype starts again. Finals of Eastbourne. Approaching that fourth round of Wimbledon, you felt like, oh, man, like if she gets through Tatiana Maria, there is a serious opening here for Ostapenko. Even the final she made in Seoul, like she had a pretty good year, big picture, 52 weeks. Why it's disappointing is because once again, I was like, oh, man, and Ostapenko and Keys probably belong in that same camp of player. Where it's just like, you know how high the peaks are. You know how low the valleys are. By the way, folks, it's Peaks and Valleys Week here at Cracked Rackets. It just felt like, again, I thought Ostapenko was going to win Wimbledon for a hot second. And she didn't. Okay. I mean, again, not to bring <laughs> okay, up. I like not to bring good. Not to bring up Muguruza again, but. Famously, I think probably the last really great match that Ostapenko played of this year was in Doha against Muguruza, during which I believe she hit something like 40 winners. Like it was like something absurd. Like there were only like 50 points and and Ostapenko hit 40 winners. It was something crazy. I mean, the way that Ostapenko played in the Middle East, not just off the ground, but off the serve, the serve for the first time ever, looked vastly improved. The technique didn't look like you were going to claw your eyes out watching it. It looked like something that could hold up. She got a, some good wins over Nisimova against Muguruza, you know, beats, you know, Kudamatova to beat, to win Dubai, but had a great win. Was it over Halep in the semis, I believe, to make that final? And, you know, I spoke to her in Fort Worth. She said she had a wrist injury. I believe it was the left wrist uh, after Indian, uh, during Indian Wells. That was when she really started to feel it. I mean, granted, Ostapenko is somewhat of an unreliable narrator and has and has historically not always performed great at the Sunshine Tournaments, although she did make the semifinals of Indian Wells in during the fall uh, version of the tournament and had her chances against Azarenka. But yeah, going back to Wimbledon, I mean, she has nobody to blame but herself to not to have not beaten Tatiana Maria. She was up a set. She was up a set in a break, I believe. I think she was up a set. She was up two breaks in the final set, just like just kept choking and choking and choking that match for really no reason. I mean, like it was just a bizarre one. Um, because at that stage of what was a very chaotic Wimbledon draw, she did seem like as good of a ch- had as good of a shot as anyone to win that title. And where I hold Ostapenko differently from Keys, Ostapenko's won a slam, you know, and she's been a player who can really win those pressure matches. And you know, she ends the season strangely, sort of a little bit back, you know close to where she was, you know, making that sole final, having a, a weird week in Fort Worth playing doubles where she, I was asking her what it was like to be here for doubles. She was like, it's weird, right? Like I'm a singles player. Like this is strange that I'm here. And then she ended up making the semifinals through like a very bizarre bit of round robin math where she won the one match she needed to in the exact fashion that she needed to, to, to get into the final four, despite losing her first two in 10 point tie breaks with uh, Ludmilla Kitchenock. So, you know, I think, for Ostapenko, it's about embracing the fact that she is just this sort of unique creature that inhabits our tour. And some days she'll play great and some days she won't show up. But certainly this was probably, I mean, there's an argument to be made that she put together more collectively like good matches this year than even she did in 2017 at her peak. Because she had to play a lot of ugly matches in 2017, certainly to win that that Roland Garros. I mean, she was just really putting down clean kill after clean kill in the Middle East. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to carry it through. So for me, she was on my list of disappointments. Yeah. Uh, again, I agree with you. So she was on your list. So we so that's your fourth name. So we're pretty close then. 
Just quickly on Teichman, because you made a laughing face as I brought her up, so we don't have to spend too long. 25 and 24 overall in the year. She lost 10 first-round matches here this season. And it's just like, for every time Teichman makes a semifinal run in Madrid, beating a Kvitova, Fernandez, Rabacana sort of run, or, you know, in, uh, I'm trying to think, where was her other big run this year? Maybe it was, it wasn't Roland Garros. I forget there was one other moment I mean, where she was that 2021 good. Middle East swing really had a big impact on you. Yeah, Maruza, sure. Or, or just Cincinnati, like, just stars. like last year Cincinnati, she was really good in that run to Barty. There are moments, and you look for Jill Teichman. So she played. Hold on, I want to get the exact number here because I don't want to be right uh, wrong. But let's play a guessing game. She played 12 matches against top 20 opponents this season. What was Jill Teichman's record? How many matches against top 20? 12. 12 top 12. 20 matches. She won four. She went eight and four against the top 20. She earned oh, wins over it. Svitolina, Kerber, Fernandez, Rabakina twice, Pliskova, Azarenka, and Conteve this season. That is that is quite a list of top 10 players. It's true. I mean, like, I, but I'm, I'm just I'm, saying, on. okay, but Two last year. We're not year, even playing right now. Okay, last year she went six and three against top 20 opponents. I'm saying like Jill Teichman's best still looks really good. And yet it's just a remarkable level of inconsistency. It's just like you feel like you never know which Jill Teichman, who has some weapons, does the lefty and can hit a heavy ball, but just like – It's with a lot of spin. You would think yeah. the margin would preclude that that's kind of inconsistency. That's what I'm saying. It's, it, it's just – it doesn't make sense to me. And so that's why it's a disappointment because Jill Teichman's better than – what is she ranked right now? She's ranked 35. Actually, eh, that's – that's about right, but she's one of the 40 top 20 players I would put on the list of just like when she is clicking, she can absolutely do damage. All right, that's one tier of disappointment. I've Again, we'll rapid fire through the end of my list, so give me your fifth name here. Who do you? Who's the last player you have? I've been going back and forth between a few. I mean, yeah. Fernandez, Leila Fernandez is a good one. Um, okay, so you bring her up, then we will get through my list here, and this is how we can <laughs> rapid fire. I have both of the U.S. Open finalists from 2021, Radakanu, Leila Fernandez, on my list. Now, the Leila side of the argument, injuries. Like, she played, what, two matches between the French Open and the end of the season? Uh, and uh, the, like, start of September. And so it's like an incomplete grade, almost, where it's like, I don't feel right grading Leila Fernandez just given all the injuries. And when I saw her play, she didn't look bad. Yeah, it's a weird one because coming out of, I think coming into the the U.S. Open final between Raducanu and Fernandez, I think I had more respect for the Raducanu technique than I did for the Fernandez sort of competitive mindset. And I think in the year since, that is in some ways flipped because I feel like Fernandez is really just a phenomenal competitor in general, even though a lot of her results this year sort of don't stack up to that because I really felt that she had a lot of opportunities. I mean, you go back to that French Open in 2021. I she, I felt like she had a clear highway to make a second Grand Slam final and then obviously gets injured and even injured. She nearly beats Martina Trevisan in, in that match and um, had her shots against Samsonova at the U.S. Open. That was one that I felt like, you know, if she'd flipped that second set tiebreaker, you know, Fernandez maybe wins that match and kind of gets back on a roll again in New York. So in even though she was injured and had, you know, opportunities taken away from her, she certainly, I felt like given the way that she approaches the game and how competitive she is, I kind of thought that she would string together a few more uh, impressive results. For Raducanu, I mean, it's sort of the same old story for her. I mean, she's just not physically, seemingly capable of playing week. I mean, talk about injuries, just not physically capable of competing week in, week out um, with this uh, field of women. It just seems not attainable right now. I mean, there certainly seems to be a lot that needs to be addressed in terms of just 
team management, you know, just getting things into an order where she could be at her peak at these tournaments. Because obviously when you win 10 straight matches to win a slam, there's obvious talent there. It's about managing to channel that talent uh, into something more consistent. So yeah, obviously they're both, it was both disappointments, but I think for, for me, Fernandez is probably the bigger one out of the two. That's fair. I think, look, looking at the records between the two, obviously Layla Fernandez here this year, again, somewhat of an incomplete grade. She played, I think, 33 total matches, or excuse me, she played 36 total matches, 21 and 15 overall on the year, but again, didn't play a match between May to, uh, the end of Roland Garros and the start of Toronto, so... I go incomplete. You look for Raducanu, it was a really rough start to Emma Raducanu's season. was under 500 for the majority of the year. And in fact, you look at the end, 17 and 19 overall. But I thought she started to play a lot better towards the end of the season. In particular, I thought Seoul, you know, I know it was the semifinals there, but I thought she played a really good match, in, you know, half a match or three quarters of a match against Ostapenko. I thought she played pretty well in Cincinnati also. There were enough signs of life at the end of Raducanu's season where, again, there were a lot of struggles, a lot of ups and downs. You look for Raducanu, she won more than two matches in just one event this year. That was in Seoul to end the season. I mean, again, neither capitalized. Raducanu ends the year at 75 in the rankings. Fernandez ends the year still at 40. For Layla, she has the quarterfinal at, at Roland Garros. That's the big difference between the two is at least she had some sort of, I don't want to say signature run, but just some sort of follow-up run. Raducanu had a couple of nice matches, but no signature follow-up run. That's why I think, again, they're both really young. They're still both under 21, so scale your disappointment accordingly. But neither really capitalized on that end-of-season momentum. From 2021. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it has to be some scale of disappointment. That said, I mean, again, I, I cut you off there on Layla. Who else do you, Who else were you waffling between? I was also thinking of Karolina Pliskova, who, you know. Okay, sure. Last, last summer really had a lot of momentum making a second Grand Slam final after so many years of not doing it at a major. You know, certainly had her chances at the end of last season isn't really able to get off the ground this year because she gets injured, breaks up, breaks a wrist, breaks a hand. It's not able to even compete really until, you know, February, March, and just really never gets it going. Plays a great match against Vika Azarenka at the U.S. Open, but then gets killed by Sabalenka in the next round and is now down to 31, I believe, started the year, certainly close to, if not in the top 10. So, yeah, that, that was a brutal one for her because time seems to, you know, not be on her side. She's now 30 years old after, you know, having been a part of this tennis tapestry for so many years. It would be a shame for uh, her to retire as a, for, as a former number one to have not won a major title. It just felt like that was something that was within her reach. And it's never been less likely that that's going to happen. It's fair that you could definitely one could legitimately argue that the window has closed for Pleskova now. And it did feel, I, I still think it could slightly open at Wimbledon just because so many of these young players don't have grass court experience. But it's not a uh, it's not a terrible inclusion on your list. Again, I wouldn't have it because of the injuries, but I get it. I mean, shot. I mean, shots on any any surface, really. She's made yeah, the Wimbledon sure. final. She made the U.S. Open final. Australian Open semi. She's won Rome a bunch of times, yeah, which historically but people would a, say that. Yeah. I, yes, you're right. You're right. Go on. I didn't mean people to cut would. You off. People would. T I, I believe people would historically link success at Rome to success at Roland Garros more than they would even link it at Madrid. So, I mean, that that's always been a strange one for me that she's performed so well in Rome and then is not able to ever really reproduce that in Paris. Sure. Although it did get close, semifinals in 2017.
you know, yeah, again, a good a shot as anyone to win that slam had that, you know, went a different way. The broken hand is what disqualifies her on the list for me, but I get it. I have, do you have Clara Tossin on your list? Because I know she had some injuries, but after the highs of the highs of 2021 and just how she started off beating Conte the way she did uh, at the Australian Open, things, I don't want to say they fell apart for Tossin. Certainly injuries played a factor. She played such little tennis between the end of March and the start of August. I think three matches total. Um, Went down to the ITF level, has played a couple 60Ks, 25Ks to end the year to just get her legs back under her reach. Was 33 to start the year, down to 132 now I mean again turns 20 years old at the end of December so uh, it's all scales of disappointment but I thought she was going to take the next leap this year and unfortunately she didn't definitely I mean even being up a set on Collins at the Australian Open yeah. after beating Contabai you feel like wow this is really a coming or the Bukaruza match Clara at Towson. the US Open I thought she was going to win it I was like Garbine's not doing anything to really hurt you like it, the second set it felt like she had momentum yeah, I mean, Towson has just been so absent for me this year sure. since Australia that it's been hard to really, again, she just hasn't really been on my radar. But certainly when you when you have that in black and white starting the year at 33 and then being outside the top 100, that's that's rough. But again, at least for her, she's still so young that you have to think that with that technique, with that competitive mindset, it'll eventually turn back around should she, may, should she be able to stay healthy. Yeah, very well said. All right, let's continue to move through the list here. And Lee, I mean, again, another player who dealt with some injuries, but... I thought Adley had an outside shot of maybe ending the year as the highest-ranked American with how well she ended the season. Again, the technique is so pure, the explosion from the baseline. You then, unfortunately, look for Ann Lee overall. Again, it was a rough year. A lot of injuries factored in uh, to that year. But, you know, overall, Ann Lee ends the year, what, let's see, in the rankings, Ann Lee currently 129. I mean, she was 44 at one point and still just 22 years old. But uh, Ann Lee, here it is. I have the record now in front of me for the 2022 season, 16 and 20 overall in the year. Now, went and played some 125Ks at the end of the year to get some match wins under her belt. But I thought she was going to take a leap forward this year. And again, she didn't. No, for sure. I spoke to her before Wimbledon, or at least I published a story about her during Wimbledon and felt that she had an outside shot given the draw to maybe make a deep run, loses to Buskova, who then ends up making the quarterfinal herself and kind of steals that that mojo from the King of Prussia native. Yeah, a, a, a fun one to watch. Unfortunately, I mean, obviously the expectations for her certainly, it's all relative, so I didn't expect like huge things from her. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing that she wasn't able to, to really continue the momentum that she started to build at the end of last year. Yeah, I just, again, the numbers, it's pretty tough for her, as you can imagine, with that 16 and 20 record. And, you know, the the hold percentage really fell off, as did the break percentage. She just got overwhelmed, it felt like, by the pace and the size of some of her opponents at times. And again, was injured at many points of the season, but you felt like she was someone who could make another bounce. All right, I've got four names left on my list. DK, do you have anyone else left for me? You want me to just rapid fire through? No, rapid fire. All right. Is Sonia Kennett on your list? That's just mean. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it just, just doesn't feel right. To be disappointed in her at this point, it's like she's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. And I'll, I'll continue to suspend judgment until further notice. Yeah, I agree with you. Yastremska? Again, that was a, another, I mean, tragic. I mean, obviously dealing with what she's dealing with at home, mm-hmm. you know, coming with a lot of momentum, a lot of goodwill. It kind of felt like, in a, you know, 
an awful way it was going to propel her to some you know phenomenal really inspire her to some phenomenal results you know certainly you would look at that week in leon in the in in the immediate aftermath of having to flee her country you thought maybe that this was going to really propel her but obviously just sort of the emotional toll it's undoubtedly taken on her you can't really be disappointed in how she's performing this year given all that's happening yeah they um no i i agree i think kostyuk would be in that category as well young players who are extraordinarily talented but just for external factors, I think you Elsewhere. have to have some sort of mulligan too. All right, the last two names I have on the same list, they're the two wild cards I think that will define the next – the two wild cards that if they click, the next decade on the WTA Tour is just that much better. And that's Naomi Osaka and Bianca Andreescu, who will forever remain on the list of just like, you can be world number one. You have it. There's not a doubt. For Osaka, she's proven it. Four slams, even more pedigree than BB, who's 2019 is a Pantheon single season run. Like, it should be in the Hall of Fame somewhere. Just like a little line, just like BB 2019. Do you guys remember this? Because it was that exciting. I actually don't think BB had a disappointing year, and we've gone through good win, bad loss with her seemingly like half the time you come on this show, DK, so we're not going to do that again. Osaka is just a whole freaking lunch lunch bucket to unpack for us, so we don't have to do that here either. But I do think it's disappointing in the sense that, again, if you're looking for Tier 1 talent, we know Iga's Tier 1. I think Goff will be Tier 1. I think there are some other young players who will be in that conver- uh, in that range as well. But I know Bianca Andreescu can be the best player in the world. I know. Naomi Osaka can be the best player in the world. And neither of them were in that discussion this season. I think that's inherently disappointing. Yeah, they're they're both in that sort of Muguruza camp of if you're not achieving massive things, it's going to be a disappointing year. And I think the the retelling of the Bianca Andreescu, you know, story is going to be interesting over the years because we're certainly going to look at the pandemic as something that really halted her momentum, but she was already injured, you know, before the pandemic even started. So it's hard to say where she would have fit into the conversation had there been no 2020 lockdown, would she have come back sooner? You know, did that just really disrupt any momentum she had? She's still going through coaching switches and it's going to be tough because she's dealing with, you know, a lot of probably internal expectations and, you know, feeling like there's certainly a seat at the table for her and for her game. And it not really coming together. Osaka, again, like she, there must be a part of her that feels like, you know, what is my motivation at this point? I have done mm-hmm. in many ways as much as I can do. You know, what is my goalpost? Is it to be just the best player right now? Is it to be a, a champion on the, on the level of a 23-time Grand Slam champion, Serena Williams? Is that perhaps a bridge too far for me just mentally and what I want to, how I want to live my life? And maybe that is sort of contributing to that lack of perhaps motivation to be out there week in, week out. I believe she still doesn't have a new coach. We don't know where she's going to be at the start of next year. I mean, she's obviously, we didn't know if she was going to play Australia this year. She came down and played. So maybe as we get closer to January, it'll be more evident what her schedule is going to look like, but she's got to play more. I mean, Andreescu's had injury issues, but for Osaka, you wonder if it's more just up between the ears and, and less so in terms of what's going on with her body. Yeah, I I think it's well said. I like, again, for both of these players, nothing has deterred my belief that either of them, if at their best, mentally, physically, everything that being at your best entails, 
I have no doubt that both of these players still have world number one tennis in them. Now, I have more doubt about Osaka, honestly, than I do Andrescu. I do think if Bianca Andrescu's body holds up for 50 weeks, she will end, uh, or 40 weeks, excuse me, she will end a season in the top 10. It's just a matter of can we get that now from January to November, playing all the biggest events on the calendar. God willing, tennis gods willing, I should say the answer to that question is yes. You said it perfectly on Osaka, so I have nothing else to add. With that in mind, DK, I got that's all the names on my list. That's everything I have for you today. Anything you would like to add before we wrap today's show? No, just to put it in perspective, perhaps it wasn't as disappointing a season as maybe I thought it was when yeah. the year came to an end. I thought there was going to be a lot more just, ah, sort of results from people. <laughs> but when you put things in context, it's uh, – it, there's reason to be optimistic that 2023 will be better. And so I think I'm, I'm going to try to take that and hold on to it uh, through the holiday season. It'll keep me warm uh, through Christmas and New Year's. Give me that one more time. What was the sound effect? Ah, sort of like, ah, like this is like this frustrating, <laughs> like I can't. But like that was it was me watching Bedosa for most of the year, just feeling like she was always on the precipice of just being that top two player again. And it just be like, oh, you know, yeah. when she beat Kvitova and then loses to Halep, you know, when she beats Coco and then loses to Kasaki and San Jose. I mean, and even one more note about Bedosa, the fact that she is the opposite end of that U.S. Open surface coin where you have Iga and Paola both complaining vociferously about the surface. Iga goes on to win the tournament. Paola goes on to lose in the second round to Petra Martic sort of a strange, just a, a strange um, a dichotomy there because you sort of felt like either one or both, you know, either both or neither would succeed at the event. And so it's a, some maybe speaks to sort of the mental improvements that Bedosa needs to make coming into next year. But yeah, again, it's reasons to be hopeful that again, there is plenty of room at the top of women's tennis right now. And there are a lot of talented players that we just spent the last hour and a half talking about. And so hopefully as many of them as possible come to the new year you know, hungry, motivated, fit, healthy, and ready to just compete for all the game's biggest titles because it's what we want to see. Well, as they say in my culture on that note, Dainu, my friend. And uh, of course, as I mentioned at the start of the show, not just Paula Bedosa, but Peaks and Valleys Week here at Cracked Racket. So here were the disappointments, of course. Coming up this week, we're going to talk about which WTA or uh, WTA players, excuse me, peaked in the 2022 season, whether it's replicable moving forward. Of course, we'll do the ATP side of things Wednesday and Thursday. Have a phenomenal slate of guests planned for the mini break, not just this week, but all month long as we try to prepare all of you listeners for the 2023 season, which will be sneaking upon us before we know it, of course. With that said, DK, in the month, in the, in this next month, excuse me, what can listeners expect from you, the Tennis.com team, to keep us occupied? I feel like I'm on this podcast too often relative to the amount of like outside work Content. that I'm generating. You keep asking me to come up with things. It's sort of the same as usual. We debuted, I believe we're going to debut our top five quotes of baseline. We're obviously just, you know, sort of covering the off court stuff. Uh, Roger Federer went to a basketball game. I don't know if you heard. It was big news. It was big news for Roger Federer. But no, mostly just podcasting with you. I was I was rocking out at an Ingrid Michaelson concert yesterday and and our good friend or mutual friend, Victoria Chiesa, asked me what it was like to podcast with both you and Gil Gross. And I said, well, it's sort of like being on The Muppet Show. And yeah, like <laughs> Grusk. You got Gruskin is sort of your Kermit the Frog and Gil Gross is your Sam Eagle. And I'm just Fozzie Bear in the middle trying to make everybody laugh. Waka waka. You know, like it was, it was a good one. It's a good one. I'm looking forward to more of that. Uh, I'm trying to think of Kermit. Okay. Once someone said I looked like, oh, I don't want to throw this player under the bus. Should we do this after? No, no. Someone. All right. My freshman year roommate, Ben Belter. I love you. I've told him to his face that he knew, he knows whenever he says it, it gets me furious. Not that he's like a bad human or objectively 
I mean, again, you can all love it. You know, attractiveness is in the eye of the beholder. But someone once told me, because this Kermit the Frog comparison, that I looked like Milos Raonic, Ben Belzer, my freshman year roommate. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I do not look like Milos. Um, and get that smirk off your face that seems to indicate you agree, David Cade. I don't I don't not see it, but I just it's hard for me not to see that gif of Kermit going, yay, with his <laughs> arms and talking about all jazz to talk about Ben Shelton. Like, that's what I'm sort of, saying. It's, it's I like head. the Kermit the Frog comparison. That's uh, that's much better. That's much more apt. But uh, of course, yeah, I'll tell you what you look like today, David, and that's a million bucks. A million bucks oh. for sure, DK. Wonderful it is expensive to be, to be me. Yes, it's <laughs> wonderful to see you as always. Appreciate you taking the time. Of course, we always appreciate the work of our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Of course, again, with that in mind, Peaks and Valleys Week continues tomorrow. We'll get into our 2022 WTA Peaks, and then we'll continue to rock and roll with our off-season coverage here at Cracked Rackets. College tennis, preseason top 10, starting this week on the GSP is our countdown. I know David Kane will eagerly be listening to all of those episodes. And then, of course, Cracked Interviews podcast. We're rocking and rolling. Pam Shriver last week, Nick Monroe last week. We've Ooh. got a ton of other fun guests planned in the queue as well. So make sure, if you have any free time, you're looking to fill your tennis quota for the day. We've got you covered here at Cracked Rackets. With all of that said, here for today's mini break podcast, you like how I snuck in that reminder for you, DK, for our fantastic co-host David Kane, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, who, by the way, tennis-point.com, the promo code is CR15. And from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the Valley. But also the break. <laughs> and we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Yay! <laughs>It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.